Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Well, 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 here we are again. <laughs> For what it's worth, tune up your volume buttons, because here I come. Uh, it's Monday, March 4th, and uh, it's cold as hell, and I guess getting colder. Can somebody tell Punxsutawney Phil to just shut up and go away? Don't bother coming out. Uh, yike. Um, I don't... <laughs> I can tell I, there's my Monday trepidatious feeling of not wanting to jump in. Uh, not sure what's on your minds. Best thing I saw, scrounging around for news to talk about today, was just a tweet about a, a woman reading Dr. Seuss to her, her niece. The, the, the specific book in question, uh, Green Eggs and Ham. And the tweet said uh, this, last night I was reading my niece, Green Eggs and Ham, and halfway through, she looked me dead in the eye and said, he said he doesn't want green eggs and ham. Just listen to him. Respect what he said. The aunt who was reading the book said, and, and I was like, uh, well, dang, you're right. And, well, it just awkwardly, we ended it there. Here's one of the stupider Dr. Seuss books, is it not? Um, anyway, I got a kick out of that because kids so often take what we have so earnestly taught them, and they've taken it in. <laughs> And here, she's saying, why doesn't anybody just listen to him? He doesn't want green eggs and ham. There you go. Why are you reading me this stupid book? Uh, yeah. So, I guess we can't talk about that. That's just not going to rise to the level of uh, discourse expected from here, I know. Um, anybody watch the Michael Jackson documentary last night? It's a two-parter on HBO, premiered last night. I mean, it'll be available for on-demand viewing anytime you want. I don't even know if I'm willing to go back for another two hours tonight. It's so... You know, it's the word that comes to my mind is sad, just sad, all the way around. What a tortured soul he was. What a brilliant, tortured soul. And I think that the um, right at the beginning of this documentary, one of the men who, as a child, um, was sexually abused by Michael Jackson, but also befriended by Michael Jackson, uh, said, and I, I mean, I, I don't have the full quote, but it was just as the thing was beginning, and he was trying to describe who this Michael Jackson was, and he said he... One of the things that leapt out at me is right at the beginning of trying to describe Michael Jackson, he said he was one of the kindest, I think he said kindest people, kindest or gentlest, but kind, a, a, a sweetness to him. And, and then he said, and he helped me in so many ways, and he made, gave me confidence, and he blah, 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 blah. It was all this positive stuff, sincerely felt. But then the last thing on the list was, 
that he sexually abused me. So I, that's why I feel sadness and not anger, sadness and not betrayal, or sadness and not aha, sadness, and I'm never going to watch Michael Jackson again. The complexity of a human being, a tortured soul who could not sleep because of his demons. And that's what killed him, right? OD'd on fentanyl, just trying to get unconscious. Thank you for calling Colin Studios host and call screener line. Please enter your show number and press pound. It's a, a sad tale. That was an invalid show number. Please re-enter your show number, followed by the pound. Pretty much all I can say. And the sort of, uh, the other thread in it is the... That was an invalid show number. The worship. Please re-enter your show number, followed by the pound key. How disorienting. We did not receive a response. Goodbye. Incapable of clear judgment that makes one. I'm thinking mostly about the parents here of these boys. I don't know. Thank you for calling Calling Studios and Call Screener Line. Please enter your show. Enter your six-digit PIN number. His estate is going nuts and threatening lawsuits. Or he is suing and all of this kind of stuff. But Welcome. You, know, again, you are now in the host room and can manage your callers from the Colin Studio web interface. We certainly knew he was an odd man. We certainly knew he was strange. His sexuality, his literal shape-shifting uncomfortable in his own skin, with his own face, with his in, unable to... What a tortured soul. That's all. It just made me sad. These two boys, now men, that he befriended and then abused um, seem to be okay. That's the good news. They do. They seem to be. I can't ima- uh, imagine. Apparently, what uh, the whoever controls Michael Jackson's estate—I mean, talk about a futile gesture—they apparently were tweeting out to everybody that follows Michael Jackson's Twitter account, who knew he still had one, that um, they were streaming. Uh, concerts of of his, a concert that was that I guess hadn't been available, and then tonight they're doing another, opposite, the HBO, exactly at the same time for the same length. And you know what? Oh no, we got trouble. Um, <laughs> like we have trouble. Milton, craziness is happening on the show. We're hearing the phone prompts for the call-in line. Also, you're dropping in and out. Ray writes in, your feed has gone haywire. We are hearing your call screen audio. (laughs) Oh, I don't know what to do. Do you want us to, like, how about if we, um, everybody come back in five minutes? Will that help? I don't know. Can we try to untangle it? Did you hear that? I feel like I'm going to have another tantrum. Uh, I hate to go on if you guys are incapable of listening, so... Will you check back in five, ten minutes? Okay? Let's do that. I'm not going to talk for five at least minutes and 
We'll see if there's anything we can do here. Our computer rebooted or was updated um, over the weekend, and we were having trouble actually just sort of getting getting up um, before the show began. So it could be there's other things that are askew. Give me five. We don't have to run the, uh, am I on? Okay, um, enough of you are telling me it seems okay. We think it has to do with the fact that it was slow to, whatever, I'm not gonna. Uh, hi, so none of you heard all my stuff about Michael Jackson or did you not? In and out. I don't know where to, um, uh, <laughs> okay, thanks guys. It's fixed, it's fixed, it's fixed, back to normal. What's normal, I want to know? As a matter of fact, there was a, um, uh, a editorial in the New York Times. Of course, I don't have the headline, but I think it was headlined something like um, they made a point of also of noting the eloquent closing remarks of Congressman Elijah Cummings at the uh, the Michael Jackson uh, hearing where that I also said please listen to this it made me cry um, but he ended with something like we have to get back to normal and um, <laughs> the New York Times said uh, to that we might want to rethink that <laughs> because it was normal America that gave rise to Donald Trump. When, when people say we got to get back to normal, they're simply saying before Donald Trump. That's what that means, right? And um, the time says, guys, we got to look beyond that because what we thought was a normal America created uh, Donald Trump, fueled his cult of personality, uh, created the conditions for him to rise to the heights of political power. Um, and they go on to say, you know, if you listen, about the um, uh, all the things that Cohen talked about in those hearings, all that criminality, right? That was criminality that was going on for decades before Trump was president in normal America. And I thought, well, yeah, well, what's, I wonder what the Times is getting at here. And what they're getting at is the fact that our government for a long time now has failed to police and bring to justice white 
white-collar criminals. That would be Donald Trump. That would be everybody, practically everybody <laughs> in his cabinet, right? That would be Michael Cohen. Um, and that is a lesson to be learned because we don't go after white-collar crime. Very rarely. And the population, we the people, never seem to get as freaked out about it. Although I think that's starting to change, I hope. But Paul Manafort wouldn't have been able to run a presidential campaign and collude with Russia because he would have been in jail, in all likelihood, or certainly discredited enough that not even Donald Trump, who should also be in jail, would have been likely to hire him to run his presidential campaign. So the New York Times posits that if the number of white-collar crime prosecutions, and this is Justice Department, this is Justice Department, had not fallen more than 40% in the last 20 years, it could just be that Michael Cohen, who committed insurance fraud and bank fraud, tax fraud and all this other stuff, that he certainly would not have ended up being the deputy chairman of the Republican National Committee, which he was, the finance chair, the finance chair of the Republican National Committee. That was a position, by the way, that Michael Cohen held until June of last year. Trump would never have been a tr Trump's, I mean, <sighs> Trump's casino was charged with money laundering and he got off paying a fine for money laundering. Now, a poor guy who goes into a 7-Eleven and you know, shoplift something or, or raids the cash register, that person might well go to jail. The kind of crimes that these white-collar criminals uh, do involve a whole lot more money and often with many more victims in their wake, and they walk free. Oh, they maybe are told, dip into your pocket and uh, give us some spare change. And then if you think, I mean, after Trump was elected, Trump University, remember? He was already president when that baby went down in flames. That, too, was a, a, a criminal operation, a totally fraudulent operation. If he had held up all the students who gave him tens of thousands of dollars, right, for, and got nothing in return, I mean, think of all the crimes committed just with Trump University. Did it even make, did he go to jail? No. Well, granted, he was president then, so he was, like, free. The Trump Foundation, which is not a charitable foundation at all. It absolutely hews in that one way to the rules of a charitable foundation. It was used as an ATM machine for the Trump family. Miscellaneous expenditures. If we went after white-collar criminality, a lot of these people, a lot of these criminals would not have been able, I would hope, to rise to the levels of power that they now hold. I think that's the New York Times idea of how, no, we don't need to go back to what normal America was, because normal America was aiding, abetting, turning a blind eye to the biggest criminals amongst us and even elevating them to positions of power, 
to celebrity, to mass adulation. The New York Times ends its, its piece by saying, normal America gave white-collar criminals parking tickets while sending SWAT teams after drug dealers. Because for some reason we have been conditioned to believe that little people doing their little crimes pose a greater threat to us than the big, the guys who wear suits and work in office buildings and defraud and rob us blind and put people into positions in power who legislate, who create laws at the local level, state level, and national level that allow them to engage in conduct that should be criminal, but in fact, they write laws in such a way that their kind of criminality is just seen as, well, it's good business. Yeah, it's tough business, but it's good business. Nothing to see here, move along. It's hard to, um, well, I don't have to say this. <laughs> I was just going to say something I have said a hundred times uh, since Trump was elected. And, you know, and every, every day you pick up a paper, look. Uh Amy can tell my size. Right, right. I don't even want to say this one. Unless I see something else, I'm not saying it. So the, uh, there I did it again. So, so the uh, Home and Garden Show is happening. Um, that's big a uh, springtime event every, every year over at the convention center where you see all the home products, all the things you didn't know you had to have, right? This is consumerist America at its finest. Um, I mean, I can say that about a lot of things, but I happened to bump into a piece um, that talked about how this one organization of home builders, the National Association of Home Builders, uh, regularly holds a uh, what they call a it's their vision for the new American home every year and they've been doing this for I don't know since 1984 so they roll out here's the home that bespeaks what a great American home is a smart American home is and a lot of that is what's happening over at the convention center. But the article I saw pointed out, and it's something that shouldn't surprise us, won't, that the first year that the Builders Association did this, 1984, uh, the home that they said was the home was 1,500 square feet, 1,500 square feet, and it cost $80,000. Okay, that was 84. By 2006, no, it's like just 20, 22 years later, the home went from 1,500 square feet to 10,000 square feet with uh, um, it, it was a McMansion with a tri-level kitchen and island and a waterfall off the master suite and blah, 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 and it listed for over $5 million. And that is what has happened to what the people who want to 
relieve us of our money <laughs> and create desires in us that left to our own devices we would not have. <laughs> um, I forgot where that sentence started. Sorry. God, I hate that. Okay, we have a caller. I'll have a caller and get me out of this stuff. He hung up? Well, fuck him. And I'll get myself out of this. Um, so, if you think about it, these huge homes that so many people desire and uh, live in are insane. The average size of an American family is getting smaller by the decade. It just keeps shrinking. Why would Americans need more space, a bigger footprint, as we say now, than they did just 25 years ago when there's no reason, no rationality behind it, except what? Except what? Greed? No. Uh, status? Status is what it is, right? Or just we're so conditioned to needing to be, you know, seen as having status. The best. The latest. Um, I mean, obviously, if we're living in more space than we really need, we're wasting a lot of resources. We're wasting a lot of money. We're, wa you know, God, in terms of like what anybody should be doing for global warming, you're paying more for, you know, heating the places. And, and um, I don't know. So homes that the National Association of Home Builders uh, promote, and I'm sure a lot of what's being promoted over at the convention center this week, I mean, absolutely ignores the changing reality of uh, American families, of um, the fact that there is uh, climate change that must be <laughs> addressed, the fact that there are crises right now in housing. Crises in most, I think, cities in this country, especially big cities, for affordable housing for Americans, right? And instead, they just keep pushing this crap-ola. And so many Americans keep buying. Another thing that is flagged in here is that there is an imminent, just starting to happen with the baby boomers getting all frail, imminent, uh, crisis in housing for elderly people. And the elderly sure as hell don't need tri-level kitchen islands and whatever the hell else that absurd house had. So also the thing is, is when people want a house like that, they generally are going to have to move uh, to a place where there's more space, and that means they'll be commuting more. The whole thing is insane. I'm just saying. Okay? Insane. And it's weird. It's hard, because in a place like Pittsburgh, with its wondrous housing stock of old homes built, you know, 80, 90, 100, 110 years ago, when families were large, and, uh, and there was wealth here, and this was a big industrial city, uh, those homes still stand, and they sell. The people buy them. And I know so many of those homes in the East End that would accommodate <laughs> a huge, huge family of 20 kids. Yeah. Um, and there's two people or three people living in them. It's insane, isn't it? It is.
it is. We're, we're nuts. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. We're just start raving nuts. Um, oh, I just do want to tell you this about in uh, 2017, which would be about two years ago, right? Uh, the Dance Theater of Harlem uh, joined forces with the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater and they put on a week or week or two long run at the August Wilson Cultural Center. And it was sold out. There were people who couldn't get a ticket. And so everybody knew they wanted this to come back. It's coming. And it's coming in a week or two. So I really want to alert you. There's nothing more glorious than great dance. And the Dance Theater of Harlem has been one of the best dance companies in the country for so long. Um, so I just want to let you know that you got to get your tickets. It's going from March 15th to the 24th. They're doing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven shows. Okay? There's two matinees in there on weekends and uh, an opportunity to see this uh, extraordinary uh, dance group also. And to introduce yourself to, if you haven't ever, our own wondrous Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. So this is a work done by, by both. And I, I definitely, I wouldn't want you to miss out on that because you hadn't heard about it. Okay. Um, I don't want to talk about CPAC and Trump's crazed two-hour-plus rant there this weekend. Uh, have you seen the video, some of the video of him, like, making faces and sounds and hugging the American flag like it's some kind of... It was just... I mean, a lot of people look at it bad, and they really become frightened because... He seems increasingly unstable. And obviously, those of us looking on can understand why. Because things have changed. And it's just scary. I'm sorry. It's just scary. So I was talking earlier about the fact that uh, white-collar criminals get to do their, their nasty stuff. And the worst that ever happens is they have to pay a fine or they have to shut a, a foundation or, uh, you know, whatever. But paying fines doesn't bother them. They've stolen so much money from little people who would go to jail uh, that they can always pay the fines when they do get caught. Um, one of the more horrific crimes done by a rich SOB that finally is getting the attention it deserves, although he has never come close to doing the time he deserves. It's something I've never talked about here, although I have paid attention to, and it is this monster of a guy named Jeffrey Epstein. This is the guy who was accused of sexually abusing more than 80, eight zero underage girls. Now, while everybody's going nuts about Michael Jackson, what he did with those boys that he was drawn to is like, Nothing. <laughs> I mean, nothing compared to what this despicable.
remarkable human being did to all of these young, young girls. He liked them appearing to be prepubescent if you couldn't get an actual prepubescent. He liked girls. And can you imagine? You're charged with 80 counts plus other stuff. And your legal team consists of, let me, let me get some of the names for you here. Alan Dershowitz, Kenneth Starr, all kinds, the best lawyers money can buy. And then he had friends in high places who attested to the fact that he was a good man. And friends and acquaintances in high places can make a phone call here, a phone call there. They don't have to publicly do much of anything, but included in his friends and acquaintances are Bill Clinton, Kevin Spacey, Woody Allen. <laughs> Are we noticing a trend here or something? Is it just me? And Donald Trump. These charges were brought in the state of Florida by the, um, I'm not sure who they were brought by, but at the time the U.S. attorney there was a guy named Alexander Acosta. Alexander Acosta now is on in Trump's cabinet. He is our labor secretary. And Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr and all those brilliant legal minds put together an agreement that they sold to the U.S. attorney soon to be Labor Secretary Acosta, a non-prosecution agreement. And Acosta accepted it. And so there were no federal charges filed. He pled guilty to two counts of felony prostitution, just two, not 80-plus, Two, under state rules, and he was given a sentence. This, this, this rich white-collar criminal actually was given a sentence of 13 months, but listen. 13 months, which he spent in the private wing of the Palm Beach County Jail Actually, he just sort of spent some nights there because most days he was allowed to be released from the jail to go to his office in West Palm Beach. The agreement also shut down an FBI investigation that was going on and gave immunity immunity to all the people who, who around him who could have been charged as potential co-conspirators, including many of these rich friends and buddies of his who, you know, had uh, taken a turn or two or three or a hundred with some of these underage girls that he uh, gave them. Thank God for a free press because it was a newspaper story in the Miami Herald which finally brought all of this disgusting stuff the out into the open. 
And last Thursday, two of the young girls who have accused him won a battle, finally, in a court of law here, when a federal judge ruled that the former U.S. attorney, now the labor secretary, friend of Donald Trump, Mr. Acosta, had violated the Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act by making the deal he made, by keeping the deal and its details from the victims who he's supposed to be looking after, In fact, misled the victims. They thought the FBI investigation was continuing. Now understand, this was no, this guy was beyond belief. He turned his mansion in Palm Beach into a sex club. He lured in mostly troubled young teenage girls, young teenage girls, and then he coerced them into all kinds of sexual activities, also coerced them to go out and procure younger girls for him. He had these girls brought to him up to three times a day. He loaned these children out to his friends. He hosted sex parties, not only at his Palm Beach mansion, but also at his Caribbean mansion, his Manhattan, Pied-a-Terre, and his homes in New Mexico. Uh, actually, in New York, there is a lawsuit that is still in the works that accuses him of employing a modeling agency so that he could import young girls from as young as 13 from Europe and South America. The Senate of the United States the Republican-controlled Senate of the United States confirmed Alexander Acosta as Donald Trump's Secretary of Labor, even though it was known then that he had helped procure this sweet deal for this monster. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein brought it up at, uh, at his hearing and saying that she uh, would not be voting for Acosta because she said his record suggests he won't put the interests of everyday people ahead of the powerful and well-connected. No, the powerful and well-connected white men will trump girls, 13, 14, 15, troubled, and passed around like party favors. So it shows that as U.S. Attorney, now still Labor Secretary, Alexander Acosta protects the rich and powerful, allows them to get away with the most vile, offenses. And why? Why? What possible defense could he have? And what possible reason is he sitting as head of the labor, secret, uh, labor department? Okay, while we're talking about the little people and how they're screwed um, regularly, 
Uh, I have the old bit of the day, somebody you don't know. It's one of those hidden ones, one that never made the New York Times obituary page because, well, it's one of the people who, you know, isn't well-connected. Dorothy Bolden. She was black. She was poor. And she made her living cleaning white people's houses. In uh, early 60s in Atlanta, she, like so many uh, black mothers, would get on buses ev early every morning and take those buses into the better neighborhoods and uh, they would get off their buses and head into the white people's homes. They would raise those white people's children. They would tend to them and all their needs and then they would get back on the buses and go back to their homes where they tried to do the same for their own families, but of course, they also had to sleep. So Dorothy Bolden is riding these buses, and she's thinking, you know, all us women, we like get paid nothing. We have no protections. And she would talk to the other black women heading into these white neighborhoods. And she would say, you know, we got to organize. Because if we formed like a union, we could ensure we get some rights. Can you imagine? So she founded the National Domestic Workers Union. It wasn't quite a union. She didn't ask anybody for dues. They did not, they weren't able to get to the point, but an audacious idea. She led this union for three decades and used it to advocate for women in this position. And at one point, her union had over 10,000 members. She had worked for civil rights in her spare time. She had marched with John Lewis. She approached a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. She lived near him. And she asked him, how can you help me? How can we help these domestic workers? She asked him to help her organize. And she said his answer to her was this, which again sort of shows how women are devalued, even by Dr. King at this point. He said to her, you do it. So she did. She'd get up at 4 a.m. every morning, try to take care of some of the stuff in her own home. She would be on the bus by 6 a.m., be on the job by 8 a.m., she would cook, she would clean, she would tend the children. And she was proud of her work. As she said, a domestic worker is a counselor, a doctor, a nurse. She cares about the family she works for as she cares about her own and yet we have never been recognized as part of the labor force. 
It's true. I never heard of anybody trying to organize these women. Have you? Never heard of it. Can you imagine if all of those black women, and not just in Atlanta, in Chicago, and all these other big cities where the same kind of thing was going on, out to the better parts of town, back, all, raising, doing all the jobs. And white women at the time, it's, they weren't working. They, they didn't have jobs. So what the hell were they doing? And they were not recognized as part of the labor force. It's, it's so true. Anyway, she received threats. Her life was in danger. The KKK uh, threatened her. It didn't move her at all. She said, it just made me more determined. She pursued national legislation, local legislation. She started job training programs. She taught women in these positions how to ask for vacation time or a raise. She got all of her women to register to vote. And before long, she became a force in Georgia politics because she had the ear of so many women. She actually got somewhere in Atlanta and she did manage to get uh, higher wages um, and some protections for domestic workers in Atlanta. She actually, International Domestic Workers Day is now recognized. I never heard of it, did you? It's not given the same, I mean, I don't know, nobody pays any attention. The reality is, is that domestic workers today largely have no protections. They have poverty wages. There's no safety net, no job security, no benefits, nothing. And those are jobs overwhelmingly held by women. So, just want to tell you about this amazing woman. Dorothy Bolden. She died at the age of 80 in uh, 2005. Oh, boy. There are so many amazing human beings in this world. And they are often people you don't know. They are not the people who you know. They are not the people who get attention. They are not the people who get coverage. They are not the people held up as exemplars of how to live, of how to be involved in one's community. I'm just saying. So you can see what the Republicans and Trump are going to do in 2020. They're going to, their campaign is going to be pretty much this. Socialism! That's what it's going to be. God! And the media is falling right into it. Are they moving? Is the Democratic Party being pulled? You know, we just, yeah, here we go. And I've been carrying this around for a while, but I just want to, um, this was in the Wall Street Journal, okay? last month, one of their uh, columnists. And he talks about the fact that socialism is now conflated to be everything from Stalinist Russia, Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, right, and Maduro's Venezuela. You never hear talk about Europe <laughs> because we don't, Americans don't look at Europe and think, oh my God, how can those poor people live? Or, or Canada. 
So Americans don't know about democratic socialism. They hear socialism and they think commies. And this guy writing says, you know, this, so this falls to us because this is where Republicans are brilliant at messaging. And they're out there before we are always defining us, defining the terms, and scaring the shit out of people, right? We've got to be out there explaining this. And this guy is saying, so many of the people who are peddling this stuff, Republicans, actually would not know socialism if it, you know, proverbially bit them in the behind. Um, they, he says, okay, they call the Green New Deal socialism. They call Medicare for All socialism. Um, and he says, those things are liberal. They might even be considered radical. But they're not socialists because they redistribute the outcomes of the marketplace. They don't replace the market with the state as the means of allocating production. And that is the hallmark of true socialism. Socialism is, I mean, it, it, it spans everything from, from, I guess, you could put communism under it, and the Scandinavian social democracies, and every country is, it has some socialism in it, insofar as every government owns some of the assets, right? Or the pro controls productivity in some way. The fact that some of these socialistic experiments are total disasters does not mean that others are not very well received. And I mean, again, but, but we've got we've to be able to talk about this and inform those, again, those like easily frightened human beings. Um, the top tax rate that uh, OCS is, I mean ACS, I'll never get, AOC, I'll never get it, I, is, is suggesting, at 70%. That's not socialism. That was where our, our top tax rate was in 1981. Were we a socialist country then? And they called it, and, and we were booming. Medicare for all. That would not nationalize doctors and hospitals, although it, it, it might drive some private insurers out of business. And all that would do is put us where most industrialized countries already are. <sighs> and if the, under the Green New Deal, it, it would not be unprecedented if the federal government ends up financing extensive expansion of renewable energy. They did it once before. It was called the Tennessee Valley Authority, remember? No, we're too young. Jeez, I never get to say that. We're too young. Anyway, that was in the Wall Street Journal, and I really appreciated it, because that was a free marketer type saying, what the hell are you, I, he just, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> Jesus. But I'm telling you, this is, a, this is a messaging issue that we, for once, need to get right. And the moment is now.
<laughs> now because they're already ginning up and they're good at this shit, as you know. Hmm? Just saying. Gotta educate and advocate. And it's hard to do. And I just saw that liberals, liberal politicians making speeches and conservatives making speeches, they've, you know, they have these al algorithms now that can go through the speeches. And we engage in much more complex, liberals do, much more complex speechifying than conservatives do. But, and therein might be the problem of the messaging. They do bumper sticker and we do, well, and and there has to be that, or we'll get dumbed down so much, but I don't know. We got to be better at it. We got to be better at it. Thank you all for, um, uh, yeah, sticking with us there for that bumpy beginning, and, um, and I'll see you tomorrow. Susan will be joining us. Stay warm. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.